You're listening to a Toronto Centre podcast. Welcome. The goal of TC Podcasts is to spread the knowledge and accumulated experience of global leaders, experts, and world-renowned specialists in financial supervision and regulation. In each episode, we'll delve into some of today's most pressing issues as it relates to financial supervision and regulation. The financial crisis, climate change, financial inclusion, fintech, and much more. Enjoy this episode. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening. Welcome to Toronto Centers, uh, a webinar on pandemics and financial inclusion. I am Baba Kapasade, President and CEO of the Toronto Center for Global Leadership in Financial Supervision. Since our establishment in 1998, we have trained more than 13,000 supervisors and regulators from 190 jurisdictions. More than 1.7 billion people worldwide remain unbanked and the majority are women. Therefore, financial inclusion is very important for the achievement of the SDGs. Plus, we all know that crises disproportionately affect the poor and we are now in the midst of one of those massive uh, global crises. In today's episode, we sit down with two prominent experts to cover financial sector regulation and supervision, as well as the financial inclusion dimensions of this challenge. We circulated their bios to you in advance. Dr. Reza Bahir is the governor of the State Bank of Pakistan and a former IMF official. Dr. Chela Pazarsbayoglu is uh, World Bank's Vice President of Equitable Growth and Financial Institutions. Both Chela and Governor Bahir are excellent partners of Toronto Center. Chela is an energetic member of our board of directors, and we have conducted seven programs in Pakistan in just the last two weeks. I'm delighted to see both of you. Welcome. Finally, I would like to thank our founder, funders, Global Affairs Canada, the Swedish CEDA, IMF, USAID, Jersey Overseas Aid, and Comic Relief, without whom we could not achieve our global mission. Before we start, I know that many of our viewers have questions for these two experts, and we have allotted time to deliver your answers. Please type your questions in the Q&A tab, which you will find below the video screen, and we'll try to provide ample time for the exchange. The first question, Governor Angela, is a common question to both of you. Crisis matters. Over the past uh, decade or so, World Bank research has highlighted that financial crises can throw millions into poverty. So all the good work on financial inclusion can be basically thrown out the door overnight. There's always that danger. And we all still have uh, fresh memories of the 2008 uh, global financial crisis. But this one feels different. Uh, Jayla, may I start with you? What is, uh, how is this crisis different in your opinion? Well, thank you. And uh, it's a great pleasure to be here in this uh, panel um, with the governor um, and with all of you. So thanks for joining. These are extraordinary times. Uh, as uh, you said, Babak, this is unparalleled simultaneous demand and supply shocks affecting the health and financial sectors as well as the, the real economy. So we have a health crisis which had turned itself to an economic crisis. And I think we need to do whatever we can to make sure that it doesn't end up in a financial crisis. And I think 
the main um, difference in terms of this crisis and 2008, uh, the global financial crisis in my mind, is that we, um, for at least for emerging markets and developing economies, the many countries are starting this crisis at a weaker state with record high sovereign debt, record high corporate debt, much limited uh, fiscal and monetary space compared to uh, 2008, and which means that we have, you know, initial conditions are not great. We have a huge shock and the policy reaction function is also limited. So that combination leads to potentially um, much uh, worse outcomes in T plus one. So it is a different crisis. I have not seen anything like this. I've been working for many years on crisis situations. This is um, unprecedented and I think it requires unprecedented uh, responses. So I'll leave it at that, but we'll add to it as we go on. Thank you, Chela. Um, excellent overview. Governor, let me turn to you. In your view, how is this crisis different? I mean, you are a veteran of crises, so um, we'd be interested in your views on that. Right. So thank you for having me on this uh, panel with Jayla. It's good to see her again. I think this crisis is different, both in terms of its depth and its breadth. And let me explain. In terms of depth, I don't recall in my experience before when I was at the IMF, the world economic outlook for having come up with such a sharp contraction in global GDP growth. I think it's around 3%. It has been a long time since we have seen such a deep contraction for the global economy. It echoes for what we see for Pakistan for this fiscal year. We are projecting growth at minus 1.5%. We have not had this level of growth since uh, 1951. So that's close to 70 years. And so the first point is how deep this contraction is. I think the second is how broad based this contraction is for the global economy. And again, the IMF put out some statistic that more than 150 countries are supposed to have negative growth. Maybe the number is close to 160. I don't recall again ever a, a crisis before where so many countries in a synchronized manner are having such marked reductions in growth. Um, so that's one. I think second, and speaking to the point that Jayla made regarding countries starting off from a weaker position, you know, something that strikes me about this crisis is that unlike previous crises that I have uh, you know, participated in or witnessed, such as the Asian financial crisis or the global financial crisis, they had to do something with weaknesses in the existing financial or economic framework. So for instance, the 97 Asian financial crisis had to do with mismatches on the banks of balance of banks balance sheets with regards to foreign exchange exposure. The global financial crisis, you know, people say had to do with lax regulations in the financial sector, the subprime debt, and the sovereign bank financial linkages in Europe. This crisis, everything that has happened, especially for emerging markets, is purely exogenous. It's the mother of all external shocks that you could imagine because they were humming along and in fact global growth was supposed to pick up and at the previous world bank imf meetings the mantra was low for long talking about interest rates and suddenly they have been hit by something completely exogenous so that strikes me as a as a unique feature of this crisis as well Thank you. And uh, the other thing to keep in mind uh, is that uh, back in 2008, the bank and financial institutions were the culprits. Here it looks like everyone's uh, collateral damage as this crisis just gathers steam. 
Uh, Jayla, um, allow me to turn back to you. So COVID-19 uh, pandemic created particularly challenging times for developing economies, just to say the least. And the World Bank's mission is to work with developing countries. How is the bank responding to this crisis to support developing countries? So, um, yes, so we have acted very quickly and, and forcefully uh, to support countries. And initially, this was, of course, uh, the, since this is a health emergency, we developed a fast track facility to help countries deal with the needed um, uh, medical emergencies. So we have this um, uh, fast track facility already in place in 64 developing countries. This was enormously um, uh, quick uh, response and we expect that this will be extended to 100 countries uh, over the coming weeks and the idea of course is also working with uh, many international uh, organizations and to make sure that there is um, that we help countries with procurement needs since uh, uh, we have that expertise and can mobilize uh, different uh, countries at the international level. We have also been working in addition to, of course, supporting countries with the health response. We have been also working very closely um, to mobilize uh, financing for social needs, as well as to deal with the recovery, to prepare countries for hopefully the recovery phase. We have about 160 billion of financing over the next 15 months, both for the emergency health support, as well as uh, support for social and economic implications, including supporting jobs, which is going to be very critical as we um, uh, hopefully exit the, the pandemic. The, 50 billion of this support is for the world's poorest countries on grant and highly concessional terms. This is for either countries which are which house most of the uh, the poor. So the um, program is based on uh, three pillars, as um, as I mentioned. One is to protect the poor and vulnerable households. So these are cash transfers, cash transfer programs, safe, social safety nets, and, and so on. Um, second pillar, supporting businesses to save jobs with the emphasis on jobs. And third is um, helping countries with uh, economic resilience. So to make sure that they can recover um, out of this crisis and uh, with uh, ability to be able to grow going forward. As Reza mentioned, this is um, uh, really unprecedented in terms of the implications for uh, many of the countries. And my concern is that if we don't act fast, we will end up uh, this crisis with much more inequality between the developed world and the developing world. We also called um, both Kristalina, uh, uh, the managing director of the IMF, and David, our president of the World Bank, we uh, called for uh, a suspension of debt service for uh, either countries. This was um, welcomed by the uh, uh, G20 and, and endorsed. So this is something that we are also hoping that will give the, these countries some room to deal with the pandemic and give some breathing space um, to deal with the, the situation, which is very difficult. So those are some of the, um, the ways that we have been uh, supporting countries, as I said, with really working around the clock to provide financial support, technical advice to guide uh, policy responses, and uh, also help countries with bigger programs to um, internationally bigger programs and initiatives to exit this crisis in a better shape. Thanks. 
Um, Jayla, it's very encouraging to see IFIs like the World Bank to be mobilized uh, so decisively and moving so fast. And obviously the crisis is very disruptive, but also it's changing the normal. As we all know, we're really entering a new normal now. And I'd like to ask my colleague Diana to put a graphic up. Uh, in preparation for that, uh, Toronto Centre is also going to look at supervising the new normal. So that's a new series of programs that will come up uh, as time uh, permits. And uh, the two of you, uh, Jayla and the governor, have a standing invitation to participate in this discussion later on when the time is appropriate. So I just wanted to put that for the various countries watching. I think we have over 250 uh, 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 participants are representing more than 50 countries watching today. So I just wanted to let you know that this is something that's coming. Thank you. Now, moving back to governor, uh, with the COVID-19 pandemic spreading globally and central banks responding to the situation by taking different regulatory measures, thinking about Pakistan, what policy and supervisory decisions have you taken to reduce this impact on the financial sector and businesses in your country? Babak, I'll, before I answer that, let me just uh, comment on one thing that Jayla said. And as a policymaker in, uh, in an emerging market, let me applaud the work done by the leadership at the World Bank as well as the IMF to push through uh, additional financing for developing countries and uh, whether it's additional concession financing or it is um, debt relief. I think the quick pace with which the leadership at both the World Bank and the IMF have acted is a very, very good sign and one that uh, I think uh, developing countries appreciate, certainly we appreciate in uh, Pakistan. I want to answer your question, Babak, first in a general context about how COVID has struck us in our broader economic trajectory, and then specifically three measures that we took on the central bank side. But the broader story is, I think, very important. And this is that when COVID struck Pakistan, we as the economic policy makers were in the midst of telling a story. A story to our domestic stakeholders and to our international stakeholders. And that story, Babak, was that we are putting our economic problems behind us. And that story was beginning to resonate. Bloomberg called Pakistan's Karachi Stock Exchange the best performing stock market in 2019. Capital was flowing in, our reserves were increasing. And uh, international financial institutions like the IMF we're singing our praises and having worked at the IMF, I'll tell you that it's not easy to get the IMF to sing your praise. So we were, we were you know, finally uh, uh, feeling that we are putting our problems behind us when COVID struck. And our first and foremost goal, Babak, right now is that we provide a prudent, quick policy response while at the same time not letting our fundamentals deteriorate too much because having participated in previous crises, sooner or later, the outflow of capital will lead to search for yield. Sooner or later, the fear will turn to greed. When that happens and there is search for yield and capital comes back, we want to have our fundamentals preserved in a reasonably good shape so that we are one of those destinations where capital does flow in. So I wanted to share with you our overall context. 
Now, in terms of dealing with the impact of the crisis, I'd like to point out three things that the Central Bank of Pakistan has done. First and foremost is that we have cut interest rates in a fairly aggressive manner. Cumulative, we have cut rates by 425 basis points so far, but that slightly overstates the extent because our starting level of interest rates, 13.25, was quite high compared to other countries. So if you look at it in proportionate terms, the cut that we have done is roughly in line with other emerging markets. But these are time, times when interest rates by themselves may not be enough, and you have to find other ways to inject liquidity into the system. And so I want to highlight two things that we have done to that effect. First, Babak is a scheme and, uh, that we have introduced whereby if you are a company and you commit to not lay off workers for the next three months, then you get eligible to borrow uh, through a bank, which is refinanced by the central bank, at 3%. So our policy rate right now is 9% and the market borrowing rate is close to 12%. So you get a big discount by being able to borrow at 3% for the payroll for the next three months, provided you do not lay off any of your workers. So that's one scheme which we have um, come up with, which has seen a very large response. The response has been less on the SME side. We can talk more about that because banks are being very conservative and because risk weights are higher on the SME side. Their uh, con conservative approach is reflecting in less take up on that and we can talk about this separately. But the second initiative that we took in addition to the cutting of the interest rates to inject liquidity was the extension of principal payments in borrower's loan obligations by one year. So this was a presumption. It was not a across the board extension, but borrowers had to apply for to banks for extending their principal payments by one year. But the presumption was that the banks would agree and where they don't, they would also inform us. And sometimes there are good reasons for a bank not to do so if it is a solvency case as opposed to a liquidity case. But overall, this scheme has produced a lot of injection of liquidity. And just to illustrate to you the magnitude, in about two and a half weeks that we launched this, we have had $1.5 billion worth of extension that has occurred. And the underlying loan value of this is about 3% of GDP. So in about two and a half weeks, 3% of GDP worth of loans have had their principal extended by one year. And this has saved many of these borrowers from making those principal repayments that they would have had to do otherwise. So in addition to cutting interest rates, we are also simultaneously working on the quantity front. Well, this is, uh, sounds uh, incredibly uh, complex, but also impressive, Governor. Uh, Chela, moving on to you. Uh, there's obviously well, can I make a make an sure. intervention on what go on, go uh, ahead, go ahead. just said? Go ahead, please, I yeah. think it's um, it, this is uh, very important to um, also condition, as you said, the the, the the stimulus or the support to firms to keep uh, employment. I think uh, to keep jobs because that's how it's important because those are the firms that are going to give you also tax revenues, hopefully, in the recovery phase. So I think it's it's uh, it's really uh, important to make sure that the, the economy is in coma right now and you need to sustain the patient so that they can recover and, and uh, per, uh, perform in after the 
crisis is over. I would though like to make a point and, um, and that is for transparency. Uh, for many of the supervisors, there will be a lot of um, uh, pressure for central banks, the supervisory agencies, and we see it. We see it, um, you know, the IFRS 9 is being delayed, um, uh, even Basel III norms are being delayed. So, you know, many, uh, even at the international standard setting level, as well as at individual uh, institutions, there are many programs aimed to keep the um, uh, real sector uh, going so that we don't end up with major problems in uh, what we call T plus one. That said, I think it's very important that we don't lose all the, the gains we had since the great, you know, global financial crisis. So to make sure that there is, um, like Reza said, that there's a sunset clause to these programs, that there is monitoring for these programs, that it doesn't go to keep uh, companies that shouldn't be kept uh, alive, and also preparing the ground. Because I think this crisis is very different. It's an exogenous shock, but a big shock. And it will create tension on already weak firms, but more broadly even. So it's also the time, I think, to make sure that we have in place restructuring mechanisms because there will be a need to restructure firms uh, going forward. And I think the more we have out-of-court settlement systems, uh, insolvency procedures, and other types of um, mechanisms, uh, frameworks in place, easier it will be to deal with the, uh, the consequences in uh, the next period. Thanks. Yeah, well, actually, that's a very important intervention, Sheila, because, uh, you know, as the governor was talking about it, and uh, I think this is something uh, a lot of various uh, decision makers are grappling with. I mean, that entire question around moral hazard, for example, or should we do too much? Should we do too little? And I think a lot of people are trying to side on the era of doing more to stabilize the patient. But at the same time, your point is very clear. And that's, that's what you and the governor have worked out throughout your career, making sure standards are there, transparency and accountability is there as well. So there's a time and place for all of these, but it's very good that people are consciously thinking about this. So bringing it back to you, Jayla, on another line of questioning, there's a direct link between uh, financial inclusion and gender equality. I know gender equality and SDGs are very important to your mandate in your role. And this question really is about resiliency. So Jayla, when you look at various national experiences on gender equality and what are, the, what are some of the success stories but more importantly, what can supervisors and policymakers do to ensure this COVID-19 disruption doesn't permanently roll back these gains? So, yes, uh, I, and this is a concern for us because um, uh, women do get impacted quite a bit during this crisis, and we can go into the details of that later. But I think what needs to be done is... Um, and we will hear from uh, the governor because uh, there has been really good progress in Pakistan in terms of data, making sure that we have, in, at the bank we have our index that provides information at least to understand what we are dealing with and then develop a strategy around the, the um, concerns or the issues that we are facing. Um, I'd like to also bring uh, some sign of optimism in this crisis is the role of digital uh, financial services which allows to access the remote corners of the world and it's especially for women 
given the security issues, um, unfortunately, the legal uh, barriers in front of it, many women in terms of collateral, uh, access to finance, financial capability, and laws and norms that are really deterrent for um, women's access. It makes uh, this digital uh, digitizing government to person payments, both in terms of social transfers, wages, and so on, makes it uh, easier for women to access uh, credit. And I think this is uh, a really important area to focus on. And I, if anything, this crisis, I think, reminds us how important it is to make uh, progress with uh, digital uh, financial services. We actually have uh, a, um, a report coming up uh, today, later today, which is basically on digital financial services, countries' experiences, and what are the key issues that needs to be uh, taken into account as countries put, put, roll out their strategies. So we have seen, um, uh, three initiatives uh, that have been particularly impactful. One is greater focus on digitization, and we will hear more from, uh, I'm sure, from the governor on this one. Um, easing rules and um, uh, procedures for women in terms of account opening, uh, ensuring, and the third one is ensuring that the national strategies that have, a, that have gender as a target and that promote the collection of gender disaggregated data. In terms of success stories, I think uh, we really welcome the work that Pakistan has done in this area. Uh, I think this was really great that um, it, the women's financial inclusion was put as a central to, to uh, the national financial inclusion strategy. I don't want to steal the thunder from uh, the governor, but I think it's really a, a great role model for many other countries. Indonesia has done a lot uh, in terms of increasing uh, transition to digital payments and including women, especially rural women. Uh, similarly, Rwanda has done um, a really uh, impressive gains in terms of national financial inclusion strategy, helping to increase women's uh, participation. And um, also uh, another example is um, consumer protection and uh, easing account opening restrictions in the context of Tanzania. Uh, they were actually able to increase, increase inclusion from 14% to 42% uh, for, in uh, 2017. So within five, six years, really um, good gains. So very good stories from many countries around the world. Um, but I think the key is for the leadership to determine this as a key um, objective and really have a plan of action that is uh, implemented over time. Thanks. Thanks, Sheila. So the more uh, commitment there is from the leadership, uh, the more enduring these changes will be post-crisis uh, situation. So thank you for that. And the governor, staying on the topic, according to uh, World Bank Global Financial Inclusion Database, Pakistan falls behind global standards. Could you please tell us how you are addressing this issue at the State Bank, especially as it applies to your recent gender financial inclusion strategy that you had mentioned in Toronto Center's uh, recent roundtable discussion during the IMF World Bank spring meetings, I believe it was last week. Thank you. Thank you, Babak. I'd like to make two points. The first is about overall financial inclusion, the state of it and what we need to do more. What are the lessons we are learning? And then talk specifically about gender and reducing the gap that we face on financial inclusion. Now, let me first talk about overall level of financial inclusion. 
Now, uh, we, um, as you rightly pointed out, have an opportunity to do a lot more. Um, our latest numbers that we have, and these are slightly different from the Findex numbers because our numbers come from the supply side, which means a complete census of all bank accounts because we get that information from the supervisory side in our central bank. And when we look at those numbers, uh, the most recent numbers that we have are that 64% of uh, adults, both men and women, have an account. But there is a problem with this number because when we look at active accounts, this number drops to half. And that to us is now a very big challenge that while we have been pushing and pushing to get more accounts opened, we are realizing that many of these accounts are dormant and they are opened as part of a particular drive, but then people don't end up using it. And what we are coming to is a realization that I think some other countries have come to is that we need to change our strategy instead of pushing to just open accounts, we need to demonstrate the use cases of accounts. And this is where our work on digital and FinTech comes in because they are demonstrating use cases such as government payments, such as payments, such as retail payments, such as supply chain payments and others. And if we can demonstrate the use case and the usefulness of having an account, then we are hoping it's going to lead to demand being created for people to open an account because they're going to say, hey, I have an EMI or I have a wallet and this is actually quite convenient, so I want to open one. So that's the first point that I want to make out about the intersection between the work on digital payments uh, and financial inclusion. Now, the second point more specifically is on gender. And uh, as Jayla mentioned, we are going to be launching shortly a document called Banking on Equality with a double meaning on, on the banking uh, on, uh, on equality. And it's a strategy to bring to the national attention the importance of making progress. And uh, we have a big gap right now. If you uh, look at uh, census data that we have based upon all accounts, 28% of women have a, have a bank account. But once you look at unique active accounts, that falls to 15%. So again, it's a very low number that we need to increase. So what are the key pillars of this strategy that we have introduced? The first is to promote gender, gender diversity in financial institutions themselves. And right now, about 13% of all employees of financial institutions are women. And the strategy sets a target of this number rising to 20% within three years. So within three years, 20% of the all staff of financial institutions needs to be women. We have a type of accounts called branchless banking accounts. And this was a innovation that was done on the part of Pakistan several years ago, which means that we have branchless banking agents, which essentially are people on a motorbike that go into the villages and the rural areas and they get people to open accounts and all people need to do is have a visit from a branchless banking agent. Well, it turns out that nearly all of these branchless banking agents are men. And here is where the social norms issue comes in because many of the agenda on uh, uh, women's financial inclusion 
cannot progress unless we address the issue of social norms. And uh, one way to do this is to get more uh, women branchless banking agents. And um, one of the objectives in one of the goals in this uh, document is that right now, there are only 1% women branchless banking agents, and we want to increase that to 10% in three years, um, uh, hoping that that will uh, generate a better uh, response to, um, to, uh, uh, for women to get included. A second pillar of this strategy is to get banks and other financial institutions to develop products that are more women-centric. So right now, the extent of you know, banks developing women-centric products is to offer pink checkbooks. And that is not really you know, uh, a lot of innovation. So what we want banks to do is to employ dedicated research uh, to, first of all, understand what are the needs of, say, women entrepreneurs. Many women are doing home businesses from their houses. So what are their needs to invest resource in it and then come up with products that will address those needs? So one uh, fintech that we have recently licensed, for instance, is going to do merchant onboarding uh, remotely. And we feel that this is going to really help with women businesses because it's going to allow many of these women uh, business women to be able to create, either to obtain a point of sale machine or a QR code setup or something remotely so they don't even have to visit a branch. And the third uh, pillar is robust gender disaggregate data. And this is a point that Jayla and the World Bank have been emphasizing as well. And we have put in place a fairly comprehensive uh, methodology by which to collect such data. I think where we need to work more is then to figure out how is this data going to affect our policy decisions. And that's an ongoing conversation that we hope to have with the World Bank in the coming weeks. Excellent. Uh, Governor, the next question goes to you as well. And then the next one to Chela, then we open up to the audience because we have a lot of good questions here. So I'd like to cover as many of those as possible as well. So in one of your speeches, Governor, you mentioned that Pakistan is in a good position for boosting technology-enabled financial inclusion and Pakistan's startup tech and fintech ecosystems have made notable progress with improving their supportive networks. So that's a big achievement for the country. If we look now from the supervisory angle, I wonder if some of that has also spilled over uh, on the oversight function. How are supervisors using technology to monitor financial institutions more effectively? Some call it subtech. And is this making a difference in broadening financial inclusion? Okay, let me uh, make two points on the intersection between technology and financial inclusion. First, specifically on how supervisors are using technology. We've had uh, two initiatives recently. One is an electronic credit bureau that was set up um, a few years ago, which allows for data to be submitted on a portal directly by banks and then allows banks access to this portal as well. So they, they can in, obtain information electronically about the credit worthiness of uh, potential clients that they are considering lending to. So for us, what this has done is it has made it very, very easier for supervisors to quickly access data from this credit bureau. 
and allowed us to exercise our supervisory function better. Second, we had a paper quarterly chart of accounts, and uh, that has also been completely automated and now is again uploaded at our portal. And then subsets of that data are automatically sent to our various teams. For instance, those working on capital adequacy get those metrics, those working on liquidity get those metrics directly. And we are very quickly able to do analytics um, to answer the questions that we are interested in. And finally, at this time of COVID, when we have only 15% of our staff reporting to the office and the rest working at home, having these electronic and technology has allowed the work to continue and they're able to access these portals remotely. So that's some examples, Babak, of how we are using technology on the supervisory side. Then on the fintech and financial inclusion side, more specifically, I just wanted to mention a couple of things that um, the um, World Bank has been helping us developing a national payment strategy. And the World Bank president came to Pakistan recently to the state bank. Jayla was there as well. And we launched this strategy. And one key pillar of this strategy is a faster payment system just like uk has one called the uk faster payments just like singapore has one called the fast system and this is literally a system that is going to enable payments within seconds across all types of platforms the reason this is a very important part of our digitization drive is again to the end use issue once people see that they are able to make payments within seconds across platforms across the type of people that they deal with they will see the end uses and i want to mention maybe one other thing in addition to this fast payment system which we call mpg micropayments gateway i want to give an example of a emi uh, that has recently been licensed so since we've been working on the digital space we've recently licensed six emis one of these is a is a company called finja and Finja is going to digitize the payrolls of SMEs. And uh, the way it makes money is that essentially it creates these accounts for all the employees of SMEs and it earns the float, which it parks with the banks and invests in treasury bills. But what Finja is doing is again, illustrating to the employees of an SME, the end use. And essentially through these mobile wallets, the employees are gonna be able to make a whole host of payments that they normally need to do, such as paying bills for utilities or schools or other payments. And so this is something that we think once it's launched, will again increase the demand on the part of people to get more included in the financial sector. One thing Finja is gonna do, once it gets all these uh, spending patterns of people, is it's gonna be able to, give a credit score to these people and then it's going to be able to use a lending affiliate to be able to target specific lending related products so you can see how the linkages work once you get people in once people see the demand for these things and once they get data the inclusion uh, proliferates and credit constraints can begin to be eased uh, Chela, this is actually, the governor said some very interesting and important things. It's probably a good setup for the question I'm going to ask you, which is, what has the World Bank been doing to improve the safety, reliability, and efficiency of payment systems and financial market infrastructures? In the context of COVID, this question takes a much more important undertone. So um, 
have these are these in your view helpful in responding to the COVID crisis? Yeah, before I, I answer that, I just want to uh, go back to what um, uh, the governor was saying on this um, really impressive uh, digitizing SME um, uh, payments and uh, that, that this would then help with credit scoring and allow um, access to finance. And I think this is where it, this becomes really important because not only transactions, but also it leads to savings, different savings behavior, different credit, um, access to credit. But we also, usually we forget about insurance, which is very critical, especially for countries with rural um, uh, workers and rural sector, informal sector, and so on. And the amount of, uh, because it dis really reduces transaction costs and monitoring costs, that's what uh, digitization or technology uh, really brings, it makes insurance much more affordable. So micro insurance products becomes uh, much more feasible for um, uh, those that really need th that type of cushion because unfortunately they, because of the informal sector workers, they don't have access to other safety nets that uh, formal sector workers have. So I think there's a really um, a, a very important pathway from transactions to credit to savings and insurance, which are really critical um, uh, for many that have been excluded um, from the, the financial sector. So I just wanted to make that point because I think there's much more room to make uh, progress on, on the insurance, micro-insurance uh, side. On um, our work with um, on uh, payment uh, aspects, and this was uh, really great to be able to be there and, and see the launch uh, in, in Pakistan. We have worked in over 100 countries uh, over the last decade to strengthen oversight and cooperative arrangements and create the environment of uh, adoption of new technologies without negatively impacting the safety and soundness of the financial system, which is critical. So we support with uh, countries uh, with uh, regulatory changes to allow for new business models and non-bank institutions in the payments market, some of which you just uh, heard about, implement simplified customer, customer due diligence requirements for account opening, for onboarding agents, and for merchants, which is critical to have the system work. Interoperability, which is really critical in the payment services in the market to make sure that we have efficient uh, competition and also a supervisory framework for payments uh, services so that supporting shift to digital large volume payments uh, streams like remittances, government to person payments, public and private sector salary payments and bill payments. So those are all areas that we have been working with countries. There are prerequisites for um, digital payments to work and that's why we have um, at the bank uh, a program which is cross-cutting which includes of course, the connectivity, you need the uh, infrastructure, the digital infrastructure uh, that uh, needs to be in place. That you need the ID infrastructure, so that's really critical. We have a big program called ID4D, which supports countries as they make progress. And uh, of course, um, efficient functioning of the remittance markets. Last year, for the first time, 
the volume of remittances surpassed the volume of foreign direct investment. And of course, unfortunately, in this crisis, remittances are also being hit. And it underscores something the governor raised in another Toronto Centre event about the how support through mobile payments or digital payments so that the um, remittance uh, receivers can uh, transmit them to country to their um, home country, and finally the shift of government benefit transfers to digital means. So all that really helps uh, bring in um, uh, increase the the efficiency of um, digital uh, financial services. Great, uh, thank you very much. Uh, uh, this has uh, been an excellent discussion so far. And uh, I mean, just uh, recap for one second. Uh, see, the IMF research suggests that risk to financial stability increase when access to credit is expanded without proper regulation and supervision. Therefore, investing in high quality supervision can pay big dividends as financial inclusion expands. So that's why we're having these discussions and these sessions, and that's why we're bringing the experts who can talk about that. And this dovetails well with the mission of Toronto Center. That's our interest in this discussion. Now, let me go to the questions. We have a lot of questions, and uh, uh, I will try to pick as many as I can. And so I would uh, encourage the speakers to, uh, uh, I mean, be complete, but be concise if you can. So it's an interesting exam exercise, so we can get through the various questions. So this is a question from a major insurance supervisory authority in uh, South America. Uh, and they're asking, in, our, in your opinion, uh, I guess this question can go to uh, you, Chela. A microinsurance program uh, could help the state, could a microinsurance program help the state in combating effects of the pandemic by alleviating its impact for the most vulnerable populations? Yes, and as I, as I mentioned, um, uh, I think it's really critical. These systems allow, um, you know, if, especially if we can have e-insurance, micro-insurance is, is uh, very important, and making sure that, um, that the risks are also taken into account. It's a huge opportunity for the rural sector, for uh, livestock sector, and we have really great examples um, uh, from the world in terms of how these uh, insurance, micro-insurance and uh, e-insurance systems work um, and uh, in Africa, in Asia, and so on. And I think the, the supervisor's role is critical because it's important to make sure that the users understand the potential risks and that they are taking on and that they are they have the capability to understand the contracts that they are um, uh, going into so there's a, an important role of uh, customer learning and, uh, and and making sure that the, um, the that uh, that they are not subject to cyber risk or other types of risks which really can hurt um, uh, the the users but i i do think the pandemic uh, in particular be it uh, health insurance, be it um, uh, drought-related insurance, or keeping the assets uh, less impacted throughout this crisis is very much critical and you know, relates to the point I brought earlier. We um, uh, you know, have uh, uh, a lot of emphasis on banking, on credit, on you know, new uh, financial uh, fintechs and so on. And we don't put enough emphasis usually on insurance, which is really critical for those that are excluded. Thanks. Thank you for that. And Governor, do you have any views on this question yourself? 
Not so much on um, insurance per se, but I do have some views on microfinance and microcredit because that's a sector which we are seeing is going to experience a lot of stress. And um, there is a certain element of this which uh, falls in between the cracks between the central bank and the SECP, the securities uh, regulator. And uh, I, what the data that we have, because the interest rates usually are much higher on such micro loans, uh, the extent of restructuring that we are seeing in that segment is very large. And so I think that sector needs some careful attention and something that we are working on our end. Okay, thank you. And Governor, the next question goes to you so, as well. Baba, can I come in that very quickly, very sure, quickly sure, on that one? Go ahead. Because go ahead. Um, this is a microfinance institutions, really a big concern for us as well. And we have been developing a program with IFC and CGAP. You know, microfinance institutions reach 140 million people. It's really small loans, but it's really critical. So I, um, I, I fully agree with um, what the governor has said, and we are putting together a program where we could have some sort of a first loss guarantee by IFIs um, or, or IFC in our case, or, or even the bank that would support microcredit institutions, because I think they will be really critical in this crisis, especially for um, micro MSMEs uh, to be able to serve. And Thank if you. I can just add on that, Babak, just to jump in, sorry. You know, when I was talking to you about our scheme that allowed for principal extension, but it had to be done through an application and the, it had to be a request to a bank and then the bank had to approve it. Most of the requests that have come have actually come from small borrowers. And so there is, you know, that fact already, maybe 90% by number of the requests have been by small borrowers. So in a way it's good because their principal has been deferred but it's only a deferment. And then if the problem is brewing, it's something that we're gonna to need to address. Excellent. So yeah, that was a very productive question, generated multiple uh, mm -hmm. answers and sub-answers. So, Governor, the next question is for you. The EBA, ASVA, and other organizations have issued guidance notes on default, forbearance, and IFRS 9. How effective are these guidance notes given that this pandemic seems that it would be around for a while? So it's a question of endurability of the crisis and guidances that are being produced around that. So these, uh, I mean, the guidance that has been produced by them, you know, has been useful. Uh, there is a lot of work being done by FSB about other country experiences that we've been looking at. That has been very useful. There is a policy tracker, I believe, on the IMF's website that we've been consulting. Essentially, I'll tell you, Baba, our approach right now has been, since it, this uh, pandemic has been so swift in its destruction of, um, of, uh, of economic activity, that we've had to act very fast. And we've had to see what some other jurisdictions are doing. We've had to apply our own uh, judgment. And I'll share with you one or two things that we've done. One is that with regards to forbearance, uh, we have doubled the period that a uh, lender has to reschedule a loan of a borrower. Normally it's 90 days, and if the payment is delayed beyond 90 days, then it is already subject to classification and provisioning. And once it is provisioned or 
classified, the interest of the bank to restructure it suddenly diminishes because it's already taken the charge on its income statement. So we doubled the period from 90 to 180 days, which allowed a longer period for the lender and the borrower to try to come to an agreement for the rescheduling of their obligation. As you can imagine, this is going to be applied in those cases where it's not very clear cut on the part of the bank, whether it's a liquidity issue or a solvency issue. In this period, if a rescheduling is achieved, it will not be subject to reporting uh, to the credit bureau. Uh, it will not be you know, subject, uh, the borrower will not get classified as somebody who's had problems in their pain. So, so that's an incentive. Similarly, the principal extension scheme, whoever participates in that does not get reported to the credit bureau either. So these are some, um, some forbearance which has been time bound that we have provided. But more than anything in terms of numbers or policy, I'll tell you one or two things we're doing at an institutional level, which I think are gonna be a lot more useful. Since this started, I have asked the head of our banking supervision group to do a weekly Zoom or WebEx call with all the corporate heads of all the major banks to get very real-time, high-frequency information on the developments of their credit portfolios. We are getting very valuable information uh, through this forum about what is happening on the portfolios on the bank side. And in fact, the, the initiative that we launched to protect uh, employment by offering three months payroll came about from one of these discussions. Another thing that we've done is something internal. We've created a committee of senior officers that are on a daily basis reviewing the decisions of all other countries and constantly coming up, feeding the senior management of the central bank with ideas, possible measures that we can keep in our back pocket in case things deteriorate. But one of the key issues right now is going to be to see how much deterioration occurs in the bank's asset quality as a result of everything that is going on. You said it, Babak, that these days are such that it's uh, better to err on the side of being more expansive. The risks are higher uh, on the other side. So that's what we are doing, but we are keeping a very close eye on the developments on credit portfolios. Great, uh, thank you, Governor. And Chela, again, keeping an eye on the ball and uh, enabling uh, flow of uh, credit and et cetera. There's another interesting question here. All these questions are great. Uh, actually, this is from one of our uh, uh, longtime program leaders, Chela. Will the effect of pandemic on the financial health of banks and other financial institutions affect the willingness of supervisors and financial institutions to remove barriers to financial inclusion, particularly those created by AML CFD requirements? So, yes, I think I mean, it's, a, it's a very important question. I think um, we need to make progress, and this is one of the key um, work streams of FSB as well in terms of um, payments uh, systems, especially cross-border payment systems, and making sure that, um, that there's proportional AML CFD requirements that uh, do not um, uh, lead to exclusion, that do not, especially for remittances and uh, other types of 
uh, small transfers um, that are very important for financial inclusion. So I think it will um, help with um, more transparency, but also making sure that the, that there are, uh, as I mentioned before, due di customer due diligence uh, rules and regulations that are electronic and that are based on a live system of updating, if you like, with digital ID and so on. I think this will really help us as we um, uh, as we go through the work with um, uh, ensuring uh, AML CFD rules are also uh, also um, complied with. Thank you very much. And uh, I have a, uh, there's a comment. I don't think it's a question. I think it's important to read. It says, efficient regulatory and supervision of fintech services is key and consumers must be safeguarded from exploitation and abuse. I think both of you would agree with that. So I'll take that as a friendly but important comment. Next question is for you, Governor. The questioner is thanking you for all the good work that you're doing at the State Bank and says uh, they would like to find out how is the State Bank addressing the issue of ownership of SIM cards by women during the COVID pandemic to facilitate opening of mobile accounts by women? Mobile accounts are one of the easiest ways to promote opening of accounts by women, but because of cultural norms in Pakistan, my understanding is ownership of SIM cards by women is not widespread, particularly in rural areas. Do you have any views on that question? It's an excellent question, Babak. And I think it points to the issue of social norms that I spoke about earlier and was part of helpful feedback that we got from the World Bank as well. So our approach is still evolving on this. And uh, some of the ideas that we have is to partner with strong CSOs, strong community organizations, and uh, particularly men, because men have to play a critical role here which is to come out and say that women having SIM cards does not threaten their manhood or does not threaten their uh, perceived sense of whatever they think is right or wrong. So, so a one part of our strategy, and this is being developed, it'll be part of the banking on equality document, is to partner with other leading uh, CSO type organizations, community organizations, and then particularly looking for both men and women role models in the country who can promote the use of SIMS. And the use of SIMS is critical because the faster payment system that I spoke to you about earlier, the micropayments gateway, that's going to be launched in a few months, is a system where payments are made through your telephone numbers. That is the identifier. And therefore, it is critical upon us to ensure that there is more take up. So community organizations is one. Second is telcos. I think there is a lot of opportunity for partnership with telcos. We know that they are keen as well. And that's a space that we are exploring as well as to how to most effectively partner with them to reach out particularly to the rural areas. Excellent. Thank you. And uh, Chela, we're coming to the uh, end. So I'm going to give this last question to you. And then uh, if, you, if you could please take about a minute or so to answer it. It's pretty important, but uh, if, see if you can encapsulate it. Um, uh, the, uh, the, the questioner really thanks you both and says, I would like, the, I'd like your views on the impact of this crisis on informal sector in developing countries and in general on financial inclusion. I think that's a good way to... Uh, sort of bring our session to a wrap. Yeah. 
Yes, unfortunately, this um, crisis has um, huge implications on the informal sector because of the social distancing rules and um, and uh, many other uh, necessary measures that are needed to deal with the pandemic, and therefore really thinking hard as to how to uh, support the informal sector through mainly um, the types of um, work that we do with households, because I think it's important to keep people alive rather than the little store alive. Um, uh, for those that can, after the crisis, can rebuild the assets and, and start, um, uh, it's, I think, in my view, it's more important to provide that type of um, social transfers and, and cash transfers to make sure that we keep families and, and um, households alive, but not necessarily this, you know, the informal sector work that they are doing because they can easily pick it up after the crisis. But I do want to also say that formal sector in many of the countries, developing economies that we work in, and usually that's where you have tax revenues from, usually that's where you have the jobs and growth prospects. And I worry sometimes that if the attention is really on the large corporates um, or uh, and not also protect this layer of the corporate sector, which has ability, to, which will come back after the crisis and help with jobs and, and growth, uh, I think we will really uh, not do justice. So I would, uh, I appreciated some of the initiatives that the governor talked about to make sure also to keep the SMEs, um, the good SMEs, the viable SMEs uh, functioning to get back uh, to the recovery phase. And perhaps one way to think about what are viable or good SMEs is to look at, uh, um, or the medium-sized enterprises, is to look at their tax contributions from past year. Because, and I will end with this, what the, you asked the first question you asked was, how is this crisis different? And I'm thinking of all the crises I've worked on. And usually you come to a crisis, you have a sense of what went wrong and you know what was the reason and what you, you do a triage, you do a diagnostic, you deal with what you have to deal with. In this crisis, solvency, you know, uh, liquidity, everything is unclear. So it's very difficult to have a good diagnostic right now as we go through the, the, as we don't know what the breadth and depth of this crisis is. So that is to end with saying, you know, we will have to learn as we go along and learn from different country experiences and think hard as to how we can address this extraordinary crisis. And perhaps um, if it ends up taking much longer, um, I, either because the, um, it takes time to deal with the health crisis or it takes time to get back to normalcy because people's patterns will change, um, behaviors will change. I think we will also need to think about um, what bigger um, uh, initiatives can we come up with to help especially the developing economies. And I uh, thank Baba. all for this great discussion. Babak, if I can jump in just very, very quickly on the point that Jayla made, this point about SMEs is critically important. And as I mentioned, we are finding that the take up banks appetite to lend to them through our new schemes is more limited there. So one way in which we are thinking of this is to think of it in two ways. The credit risk, we are thinking the way to address that is through fiscal support. And the liquidity function is something that the central bank can do on its own. And to illustrate this, 
because of this SME problem, we worked with the government within a week to come up with a partial guarantee scheme whereby 40% of the loss on a first loss basis is going to be covered by the government. And based upon feedback from the banks uh, through the group that I mentioned to you early between the corporate heads, we got feedback that something like this will give a big jumpstart to the provision of credit to the SME sector and also protects the banking sector and the central bank from taking on the credit risk. Unfortunately, at this time, somebody has to put in a jolt to do something about the credit risk. And we are trying to think in terms of uh, separation to the extent possible between credit issues and liquidity issues. Thank you very much, uh, Governor and Chela. This was an excellent conversation. You really, really raised the bar. So I'm hoping that you didn't scare the future speakers that are going to come to this uh, webinar. Everything was totally substantive. I'd also like to thank our uh, the people behind the scenes, Diana Bird and Damak Chenekche, who's been really working very hard to pull these series together, and also our audience. Your questions were excellent. I mean, one of the big uh, problems that I have as a moderator is I can't get through all of your questions. And I apologize for that, but we will keep track of your questions. We will use them for our future training programs or publications or other things as they were extremely stimulating. And once again, to the speakers, you really kicked ass. Thank you so much. And uh, we hope to have you back again on our program as we evolve this series. Thanks. Bye-bye. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Thank you for everybody bye -bye. for attending. Bye -bye.